You're listening to a message from Christian Believers United. CBU equips God's people for ministry through offering spirit-empowered Bible teaching conferences and retreats. Please visit us online at www.cbu.org to learn more about how you can be involved. While you're there, be sure to browse our online library of sermons to find more relevant Bible-based teaching. In the meantime, enjoy this message, and we look forward to seeing you at a conference or seminar soon. It's very nice to be with you always. Lovely to be in the mountains, and I live right outside Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and um, basketball season is about to start. Hallelujah. Thank God. Although I like our new football coach, I have to say at UNC, I predicted to many of my friends and I'm now, re- I'm, okay, this is, here we go. I know I got a microphone right here somewhere. All right, wait a minute here now. Okay. This is more like a space creature than a microphone. Don't get me think about this a minute. Hmm. What if this little stand comes off? I'll just hold this. I know Bob, Bob kind of enjoyed the stand last night. I could tell he was wiggling and everything like a, like a lunar probe or something. <laughs> but um, I do love Carolina sports and then, um, I predicted some of my friends, and I before the season, I said, this new coach we have, he'll be the best coach we've had since Mac Brown, you wait and see. And of course, I may be proved to be a right prophet after this season if we end up 9-3, and three, we'll see. We're 6-3 and three right now. But anyway, typically as a Carolina fan, you are thankful when football comes, more thankful when it ends and glad basketball season starts. But anyway, um, so we'll see. Anyway. Thank God for optimism. And you did remind me, I'm, I'm going to be flying to New York City really early in the morning. Um, at Tom and I, the group we work with, we planted a church there after 9 11. It's now hundreds and hundreds of people meeting in three locations, and many of them were very, very hard hit during this flood. So I'll be out of flight at first light. And Tom just gave me like this real happy thought that I'm getting an hour's more sleep than I thought, so I'm glad with that. And my wife and I have been married 33 years. We have uh, seven children, four biological, three adopted. They literally live really all over the country and the world. Um, and one of them lives in New York City. Um, she helps direct a nonprofit called Stop Child Trafficking Now, mm-hmm. dealing with the traffic around the world. So thank God, I have four girls, and uh, three of which are adopted. And I'm glad she lives in Upper Manhattan, not Lower Manhattan. I'm real thankful she's living where there's light and power. Um, I know the theme of our conference is a clear word for uncertain times, and so I, I want to speak to you very seriously um, this morning, and then, I, then I'll, when I get done preaching, since I have quite a bit of time, I'll profit over you, some of you, so let's pray. Father, I thank you for this hour we live in, um, what you're saying to us. Lord, I want to thank you, no matter how uncertain the times are, you always have a clear word. In fact, throughout history, you've always spoken to us before uncertain times. There's not one of us that could not look back today and tell us you were trying to get us ready for what we're facing now, even if we miss it. And we don't want to miss it. Lord, as we walk on into this decade, Jesus, I for one, and feel privileged to be alive on the earth when when you're doing so much. I'm asking you to help us now, Lord Jesus. Amen. Before we went into this decade, um, it was in December of 2009, um, 
shortly before this decade, depending on people, different people look at decades different ways. <laughs> the Lord basically came and met with me supernaturally five times, all surrounding 4.30 in the morning. All of this was put in writing and sent at that time to about 25 leaders in the body of Christ around the country. And finally, as this 4.30 thing kept happening, not that I mind getting up early, it's a little earlier than it used to, and I saw the clock turn into 430, and the Lord said 430 years. And I was reminded then that the children of Israel were in Egypt 430 years, and he said, son, you're going to come into an, an Exodus decade. And he said, the theme of this decade is going to be Exodus. And he began to speak to me about what would unfold in this decade. And he said, Jim, it's going to be characterized by four things. He said, Sonny says, I'm going to judge oppressive systems. I'm going to judge oppressive governments. I'm going to judge oppressive ideologies. And you are going to see a spirit of Exodus come over the peoples of the world. He told me about Arab Spring. He said, son, watch what I'm going to shape the governments of the Muslim world. I'm going to come and shake them, especially those that have hated the church in Israel. Amen. And he said, watch. And you know, so I've watched this just unroll in the Middle East and to particular attention because my, my son, Peter, my second son, along with our daughter-in-law, they've lived at a very dangerous refugee camp surrounded by Fatah and Hamas for years. They're both fluent in Arabic. Now they're in Amman, and when Peter was eight years old, he dreamed 30 straight nights. He was called to be a church planner. Um, in the Middle East, I'll never forget him waking up one morning at 8 and telling me in his little kind of boyish 8-year-old talk, Daddy, when I grow up, I'm going to Iraq. And I'm going to be a missionary, but I'm, not, I'm going to plant churches. And I'm not afraid to die. Don't worry. And then he dreamed about being martyred night after night in the Middle East. And, uh, he's, and honestly, that injected in Peter a fearlessness. When he walked into the, a refugee camp on the West Bank a number of years ago at the right old age of 23, um, walked in and began to play basketball with a group of armed men, guns next to the basketball coats, wearing pistols. He did not know they were the top bodyguards for Fatah. He probably shouldn't have beaten them because it made a cranky in any way. <laughs> the next thing he knew, they put him in a room, and everyone, and he, his air wasn't as fluent then. He studied at George Washington University and went to, to Egypt and lived, just lived learning Arabic. And next thing they were screaming with an automatic pistol to us that everyone in the room screaming to kill him. And you know, it's funny, thank God for dreams in those days. He said, I just wasn't afraid of all that. And he said, the spirit of the Lord came and said, I just started laughing. <laughs> and they could not believe it. You don't laugh when there's a gun to your head and people like, yeah, I'm kidding. Well, it so stunned these men kind of with their that code of blood and violence that those they talk bodyguards put out the word, anyone harms this kid will kill him. He's at the moment in time, so he has made numbers of disciples now in the Muslim world. And in fact, they they call him Sheikh, which is Sheikh Muslim. I mean, it's pretty interesting. He has met with some of the most major leaders in the Muslim world and studied the Bible weekly with one of them and, and you know, it's just amazing. I was on the phone with a young man who was a, a very, very brilliant young Muslim from a very, very tough part of the world and just, you know, raised hate Israel and hate Christianity and is now a radical saved. And Peter brought him out of the country to another country where he was discipling him. Peter's in the right old age, just turned 28, he's not old. And 
So I said, I was talking to this young man, I was almost crying because now I've Skyped him with Muslim families whose sons have been saved and we're educating a number of them. And I mean, just incredible young people. Some have been in prison for terrorists and now radically saved. And this young man told me, he said, I said, why were you born, son? He said, Father, he calls me Father because Pizza's brother. Father, he says, Father, he says, I was born to help my people and make peace with Israel. Now that's, a, that's, a, that's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And I, I want you to know, beloved, all around, I was in the Middle East recently, all around the Muslim world, God is answering prayers that people have prayed for years. Among our greatest enemies currently, there is a revival where leaders in this are forswearing violence and turning prices. No, I mean, it's one of my friends was recently in a meeting with these type of men, and they did not want to break bread with them because they wondered how can an American be a Christian since our nation is so immoral? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting right? So, beloved, despite everything we read in our ongoing war on terror, Christ is at work in astronomical ways in the Muslim world. I mean, I could, I could sit here and, and just tell you story after story. You know, typically, God does his greatest works under wraps. How many of you know that? That in the middle of darkness, God is doing extraordinary things. And so, he spoke a number of things to me about harvest and power and a lot of things. But he also talked to me about our country. And a number of things that would come to pass. And from time to time, as Tom knows, the Lord speaks to me about world events and economics and I saw this dark cloud roll in over America, and uh, we sure had plenty of those of late, and people are all coming out of their houses. They were so afraid they were coming out of the streets as this darkness came, and it was so frightening, thick, and then it began to thunder and lightning, and out of this darkness, the rain of God came, and I watched asphalt and deserts and concrete become verdant green fields and there was just exponential growth in evangelism and the Lord whispered to me and said, by the end of this decade, there will be concrete statistical evidence that the church in America has grown and that will be the first time in decades. Now, beloved, you can count on this. For a number of months now, this this theme of darkness has been in my heart deeply. probably four or five months. And in this in this visit from the Lord, and it's hard to interpret your own things, but as we come into this decade, there is going to be a very short, severe period of testing that comes to America. I don't believe more than a year. That is going to be very, very frightening economically. Um, many are going to think it's the end. By the way, it won't be. Throw away all the doom tapes and prophecies you have. I have acquaintances that have been saying America's going to end for 30 years. Maybe sooner or later they'll get one right. I don't know. They're always predicting something's going to be destroyed, something's going to be cursed. In fact, they've made good livings cursing things. And I guess if you curse things long enough, you're going to get something's going to be cursed. I don't know. And personally, I just I think yes. Beloved, God spared Sodom and Gomorrah. He would have spared it for 10 people. There are millions of people who love Christ in America praying, crying, and seeds of righteousness. And even in the shaking, God's working. But there is a pretty intense period 
that will come to try our souls in about a year and 13 months. And I don't want to talk more about it, but I want to help prepare you for it to understand. Um, some weeks ago, as I prayed over our country and what we're facing, and I don't know about you, I've had a, a real sadness in my heart as I've looked at our country, and not a doom, but a sadness, just crying out for God to move. And I felt the Lord just so sad. He came to me about three weeks ago. He said, son, he said, just before the election, he said, there's just a, he said, there's a, a, a terrible thing that will come on the country. And then I watched as this, this great storm came off the east coast of America. And by the mercy of God, that thing dropped down from, wasn't even a category one hurricane when it hit, and, or it would have been beyond comprehension. Now we see parts of New York City in darkness. My daughter, who works in the, against trafficking, was telling me that she works in lower Manhattan, lives in Manhattan, she said her building was the last one with lights on. And, and she was and there, she was working, and she looked out in all the most powerful area in the world was in darkness. That's right. Just dark. I mean, make no mistake about it, New York City on anyone's scale is the most influential city in the world. Just in darkness. And I really believe, even as 9-11 happened in New York, and it basically signified an era coming as we would fight terrorism and would have another battle, so this darkness you now see in New York City and canceling their marathon for the first time in 40 years, people afraid to go to sleep and worry about it. So of it is symbolic of the dark period we're going to face. Now I want to help you understand and how do we respond when darkness comes and uncertainty comes and it's, and it's hard. Many of you are older than me, some the same age, I'm 58. And I grew up in a charismatic renewal, saved in the Jesus movement in 1971. And so unlike many younger Christians today, I grew up realizing that hardship is part of life and you can't confess it away. So we have hard, I mean, I, I never grew up thinking it was going to all be good and somehow the devil wasn't bothering us anymore and we could confess all our problems away. I never grew up with that. And I can still remember people like Bob Mumford teaching on the purpose of temptation and why we have the wilderness and all those things. I don't know about you, I sure enjoyed hearing him last night. But I want to talk to you. I've entitled this message, The Dark Hour, Finding Victory in the Place of Pressure and Pain. And this message really has been on my heart four months now. And I, I rarely speak the same message multiple times, but this one I realize has prophetic implications. Isaiah 21, 11 and 12 says this. Someone calls me from Seir, Watchman, what is left of the night? Watchman, what is left of the night? The watchman replies, morning is coming, but also the night. If you would ask, then ask, and come back yet again. We're coming to one of those interesting times in our country, which will seem like a midnight hour. I mean by that, the new day has come, it's just too dark to tell. God loves midnight, and many of his most amazing things are done at that point in time. Where it's so dark, there's so much pressure that if you don't have the eye of faith, all you see is the darkness. You don't realize that tomorrow you believe for has already come. And that's where America is. It's dark right now. It's dark politically. It's still dark economically, though a little better. It's, it's dark as we look around the world. It's crazy what's happening. But beloved, the new day is, is coming. Now, how do we walk with God? 
in this transition. Many of you have walked with God decades. You can remember coming here and hearing Bob Mumford and Deverne Frompke and Derek Prince and Catherine Kuhlman and Jamie Buckingham. And you can remember some of the very meetings I was at. Maybe some of you can remember that meeting we were in when it was Reagan versus Kennedy for president. The country was just seemingly at a tipping point. And we cried out and prayed. As Jim and I were talking, they prayed two days a week for a year. And God moved and had mercy. And Reagan was elected president. I can remember Paul Kane standing up in one of these meetings and saying, two of the three speakers will be dead by this time next year. And that was surely so. Jamie Buckingham was dead. John Wimber was dead. I can remember meetings just hearing the word of the Lord proclaimed. And like me, you were, you were born in the fire of God. Born in the presence of God. And you've been pressing on, walking by principle, walking by faith. And I'm going to tell you, your walk is not in vain. Our ability to walk between the ways of God's spirit faithfully without murmuring is one of the very things that brings the next wave of God's spirit. The real test for those of us who are born in revival is our ability to walk between the waves successfully. To walk out the principles we gave when the word of God was saturating and moving on our heart like a fire. How do we walk? You know, it's interesting. Jesus, in the book of John, there's an interesting thread where he is preparing this little band of disciples for a period of darkness. Because he realizes that the greatest day in all of humanity is getting ready to dawn. They know that something's up. They just don't realize what it's going to cost to have it. He realizes that this dawning day of Pentecost will be preceded by the most terrifying hours and days of darkness that they ever know as humans, that he'll be taken, betrayed, whipped, butchered, and murdered. And he begins to prepare them for the darkness that's going to precede the greatest hour in all of human history when he would rise from the dead. Now, he starts in places like John 9, 4. How many of you can remember being in days of revival? Raise your hand. Spirit of God moving, your church is stirred up. Amen. I can remember in 1971 when the Jesus movement swept through our high school in Southern California. 200 of us would meet singing and worshiping and praising outside in the lunch area. Worshiping. They'd pelt us with milk cart. They didn't know what to do. People just student after student just being saved. Right down the freeway from me in the beginning of the old Calvary Chapel movement, Chuck Smith baptized 25,000 college students that summer. One summer. Just sweeping move of God's spirit. And that's what the disciples were experiencing. Thousands were coming to hear Jesus. I mean, the word of God taught like it never had been taught and never has been since out of the mouth of God's son himself. But he'd stop and say things like, as long as it's day, we must do the work of him and sin. But a night is coming when no one can work. It's easy when you're in the brightness of revival and the brightness of some great meeting to miss what God is saying deeply. He's trying to tell them, listen, get all you can now. A hard time's going to come. Dark time's going to come. It's not going to be a simple matter what you're going to face. He goes on to say, John 11, 9 and 10, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? This is when Lazarus had died, or they thought he was dying, didn't know he was dead yet. 
A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Warning them, preparing them, finally in John chapter 12. And at this point, the disciples think they've won the battle. They've come into Jerusalem, you remember. It's just a few days before he's going to be brutally crucified. And the whole city seemingly has turned out. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And many of the people who saw it, they run to Jerusalem and tell everyone, the man who raised Lazarus from the dead is coming here. Truly, maybe this is the one we're waiting for. You just imagine your city flooded. New York City flooded with hundreds and thousands of people waving palm rams, worshiping, crying. I mean, you could not help but believe that everything you prayed for would come to pass. We can all look back at high-water marks and major conferences. I mean, Bob Mumford spoke here. He probably spoke one of the most famous phrases in all of charismatic Christianity. Thousands and thousands in Kansas City. I think we've read the end of the book. I mean, you would think of meetings like that. Okay, we've really won. This is over. We've all been in moments where it just seems like nothing can stop against stand against us. And even the Pharisees that day said, the whole world has gone after you. Gentiles, Greeks were coming. Who is this? The disciples were just, hey, giddy. You know, when you get a moment of God's spirit like that, it seems like nothing is impossible for you. But they look over and Jesus isn't celebrating. His tears are beginning to stream down his cheeks. Now, it just seems so contradictory because here he's in this massive meeting and he's crying and giving crying. And he gives them this, you know, this whole teaching course later. And then John 12, he says, then Jesus told him, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Now, they're in the brilliant light of what this seems like citywide revival soon to be eclipsed by the day of Pentecost where it's not just a crowd, it's a church and something transforms them. And he says, walk while you have the light. What's he saying? Take advantage of this moment right now. Don't miss it before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. What is he saying? Listen, don't take advantage of this conference. Take advantage of this moment. Take advantage of this time where the revelation of the Spirit of God is coming. Is, is Brother Bob was speaking, and I said, I, I, I took my, my iPhone and just took copious notes. Why is that? Because here's a man that's 81 years old, lived through revival. I wrote all 10 of those things down that's to reflect on. I don't want to miss something God said. I don't want to miss a moment. Hey, Jesus, listen. If you walk in light while you have the light, you'll become a child of light. That means the light will begin to work in you. And then so even when the dark, when the light seems to go out around you, you'll be okay. And this is really interesting. Now watch this. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Why did he hide? Because he was trying to get them ready at a safe moment for what was going to happen. He was going to be taken from them, wasn't he? Jerked away and murdered. 
And they were going to be going to the three or four longest days of their life, the first 24 hours, and then the tomb. And then after that, he was going to ascend and come to live in him. He hides from us sometimes to test us, to see if we're really ready to live by faith. Where's Jesus testing you? If you can't find him, you're probably going to test. Yeah. Try to see if you can live by principle. Try to see if you can live by faith. Try to see if you can walk it out. That's why I said, hey, told the disciples, you're blessed because you saw me. There's a whole generation of leaders more blessed than you. They'll never see me, but they'll leave. Now, he's hiding. He's hiding because he realizes pretty soon it's not going to be hide and go seek. He's going to be dead. Gone. And they're going to be tested. John, Luke 22, 52, 54 says this. This comes from the garden that will cut into this text a little deeper. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. How do we walk in those hours when it seems like the enemy's dethroned God. We know theologically that's impossible. We know God is sovereign. All of us believe it. But how many of you ever walk through something where it doesn't feel like I have? Where it just seems like the power of hell is reigning in your marriage, life, your child, your country, your culture. How do we walk through that? Blow to hear me now. Years to come. Things are going to be intense for a short season. Oh, oh, oh. The devil never should have messed with this stuff. Because I'm here to tell you, things we have prayed for and believed for will die. Well, this is our hour. God's not done with America yet. Hallelujah. I want to take you down to the assembly for a minute. And you know, if you've ever been to Israel, and I have, of course, I know James did there maybe 2,000 times. I'm not sure this came many times. How many of you have been to Israel? And you've been to the Garden of Gethsemane and you've seen those trees, some of those 2,000 years old, older, it's just astonishing. I want to take you into Gethsemane and I want to examine probably Jesus in the beginning of the most intensely dark period of his life. 24 hours, Gethsemane, trial, crucifixion. Now the 40 days were horrible. It was longer. So it was harder in duration, but this was harder in intensity. How many of you ever had an hour that feels like a year? <laughs> it, 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 there, are, there are hours we can go through as Christians to take the toll of a year in our life. The news that the spouse we love has cancer. The, the, just the things you can face. Doctors look at you and say, your health is destroyed. No, they do for you. All of those things I experienced. There are moments that just seem to drain us. And I want to take you into one and ask the question, why did Jesus stand and the disciples ran? Let's ask why. Going to the Gethsemane here. The word Gethsemane, as we know and you know, means oil press. And Gethsemane is not one of those things like when you get saved, you can like buy options. You know those nice cars? Like, when you get saved, you say, you want the Gethsemane option, you want Calvary. <laughs> Trust me, those come with every salvation package, I guarantee it. <laughs> Baptism of the Spirit's optional. You don't have to get it unless you want. 
but you're going to suffer whether you get it or not. So they're coming down. What's the oil press? It's where God allows crushing pressure to come into your life to produce the oil of the anointing. That's just what it is. Yes. That the power of God lives in you, and he's bound and determined to get it out. Matthew 26, 36 says this. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now what we're going to find is very different here. Is Jesus had come here many, many times. The Bible doesn't say we know we'll find that in a moment. But what was going to be different this time is instead of merely letting the twelve kind of sit on the outskirts of the garden, he was going to invite Peter, James, and John into the very death of his suffering. And in this account, in this story, I'm going to extract some principles for you and also a couple of others and help you when it gets dark in your life, for many of you, when it says it stays dark in your life, how do you walk when the lights go out? There are people I love all over New York City being tested right now. Lights are out, cold. Lights are out, and people used to, many of them, these people, are not used to any kind of suffering at all. Turn up. Lord, my hand. Now, watch this. First thing I want to say is don't miss your time of preparation. Beloved, God never ever pressures you without preparing you. It is the principle of God. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? How many of you remember that story? Luke 9, 28 to 32 is one of the accounts of it. I won't read it, but I'll allude to it. Isn't it interesting that the very three men that went into Gethsemane were the only three invited to the top of the mountain? Think about this for a moment, what happened. Maybe I'll just read a couple of verses. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to a mountain to pray. Now, many of you here have been to some great conferences, I'm afraid. Maybe you heard Catherine Kuhlman, Jamie Buckingham. This was a bit better. You had Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and the Father showed up and spoke audibly. How many of you know that's just best conference in history? <laughs> so they're, you know, they're going up to Montreal up here in the mountains, and they get up. Peter, James, and John, they're invited. Jesus is praying. And the appearance of his face changed like a flash of lightning. I mean, God was giving them a picture of the resurrection. Then two men come down from heaven, not bad. Of course, compared to Jesus, they're kind of B-level speakers. They kind of brought in maybe for like the afternoon sessions when we're sleeping. Moses and Elijah. Sorry, Tom, we're not demeaning your session. But anyway, so Tom's an A-level speaker. We, we're sure he can keep you awake. That's why he's coming. Anyway, okay. So basically, Moses and Elijah show up. Now, this is profound. And you find, what were they doing? The Bible says in another one of the accounts, they're preparing him for his death. Basically, Jesus fully God, but he was also fully you and me. Without sin, he had emotions. He'd be tired. Moses and Elijah are basically saying, listen. We know you're going to die, but your father's plan. You wait and see what happens. And they were consulted. Now, why do you think that God brought Peter, James, John up just under good meeting? No. They were there to learn everything they needed to know for Gethsemane and Calvary. In fact, they were there to learn what they were supposed to do when Jesus turned to them and said, Pray for me. Mm -hmm. Moses and Elijah were praying for him. They were there to see the fact that resurrection glory was on it. You know the problem was? They slept through it. Yeah. They missed their moment of preparation because they were sleeping. They missed it. 
sitting with the disciples in Matthew 26, 31 through 35 and there are other places as well. Sitting with them and talk about being in select company. It's the world's first small group, the original apostles, and the small group leader wasn't bad, it was Jesus. And they were instituting communion. How was a fairly serious moment in Christian history. But it's pretty sad also because a man is basically demonized in that small group in the world's first community, Satan enters a man, just shows it's not enough to be around it, doesn't it? And at the end of the meeting, Jesus closes this glorious event. Imagine this, uh, by the way, before the, the night's over, you're all going to fall away and leave me. Goodbye, have a good weekend. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just enough to really just get you. I'm keeping you bread. So Peter goes, wait a minute. I've always secretly known the rest of these guys were flakes. <laughs> but I want to remind you, Jesus, that I'm the one you call rock. I mean, I'm a man of it. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm just a hunk of rock of faith. I'm not going to fall away. Guess what, Jesus? Peter, look at me. Before the rooster crows, you're going to fall away three times. Peter goes, No, I won't. One day. It's hard to know. I know you're on mission, but you're missing it this time, boss. This is Peter. I'm not going to fall away. These other guys, they you know, I always do. They would anyway. But I'll die before I'll deny. Just Peter. Let me make this plan for you, son. The devil himself showed up to talk to me yesterday and asked for permission to grind you down to power. Now, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is I'm going to pray for you. Okay. Peter said, no way, you've missed it. I think about this. How can a human look God in the flesh in the eyes and basically say that morning stupid? Wow. I don't see it. I'm not going to fall. Here's why. Overestimated his strength and he underestimated the depth of what was coming. Mm -hmm. The thing that's really 
have to be with Jesus. I mean, they wanted to kill him already. He was risking his life to be in that room. This was not a weak man. This wasn't it. They all risked their lives to follow him. But he underestimated the hell that was coming. I mean, even Jesus was humanity in John 12, when he began to weep about the seed going to the ground, and he says this, Father, what then should I say to this hour? Save me? No, I won't say that. It's from this hour I came. What's the first thing he said in the assembly of that warfare? Dad, plan A, you know, if you could save me from that, that'd be great. If plan B will work just as well. Even Jesus in his humanity underestimated that hellish pressure and darkness that was coming for him. I beg you, don't miss your warnings. When that brother or that sister looks you in the eye and says, I'm, I'm worried for you. Don't be arrogant. Don't do it. God's been preparing many of you for years. Listen, things, things that took you by surprise, were you really? Wasn't there a warning? Wasn't there something you saw? Someone that spoke? Someone that guessed? God always does. Number two. Number one is don't miss your preparation. Number two is don't miss your practice. I mean, interesting, in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Jesus had a lifestyle of prayer. Got up early, stayed up late, sought God, heard God. This wasn't the first time he'd gone to Gethsemane. Maybe he went to Gethsemane when he was 12. We don't know. He'd gone to Gethsemane numbers of times, as was his practice. Here's a tragedy. Most Christians have a twofold problem. They're in a crisis. And secondly, they've waited until that crisis to attempt to learn to seek God. It just doesn't work. When crisis comes, you will always do what is second nature to you. Always. I remember when I was going to jump school in the military. They threw us off towers. They threw us off on ropes. They knocked us to the ground. Because they realized that whatever, when, when the crisis came, if that chute didn't open, we were jumping out of the door. We would not have time to think about it. We would do what we practice. And beloved, that's why I tell people all the time. If you don't learn to hear God when it's easy, you'll never hear him when it's hard. It's just too hard. Too much crisis. Don't waste it. Don't waste the life. I'm, I touch God every day. Why is that? Because, brother, number one, I love it. Number two, I need it. Number three, that which I practice without pain, I'll be able to walk in when the pain comes. To Jesus, second nature was prayer. Second nature was worship. Second nature. I, you know, I tell Christians all the time. If you only seek God when you really need Him, it'll be almost impossible to find to do it. Because you have not learned the skills to do it. Don't waste it with I practice His presence every day. Many times I just stop sometimes just to hear Him again. Just to sense His presence. Don't even need anything. Just want to know he's there. Just want to be with And when crisis comes, and that's not an end. Those of you like me who have older children, married, scattered around the world, you know you have to stop parenting. There's, there's all these things you're facing, all these things you're doing. I mean, I help 
as Tom knows, lead a ministry that's in 60 something countries, and, you know, dangerous places, and persecution. And I, I go to bed with crisis every day. Every day. There's some crisis. Beloved, what, what do you do when that crisis comes? When the dark hour comes? You all know it's pretty hard to build a bomb shelter when the bombs are falling. It just is. And that's why every day, that guy grew up in a great Christian home. I was made to read the Bible for the moment I could read What an option. So I didn't read the Bible since I was eight years old. Fifty years. Man, it's just second nature. People ask me, how do you know the Bible so well? Okay. I'm going to give you a trade secret. Read it. I mean, there's just, I mean, there's just not a Bible fair. Mr. Jack, that just like hovers over your bed and touches your brain night, or I, I, I just not. Just not read it much. Remember, my wife was being treated for cancer, and they um, gave her a radioactive iodine, and they gave her a stroke. Got into the white blood cell, she had that blood for 13 years. Couldn't drive for years. Grandmother seizures, smaller seizures. Never faltered. Went and taught Sunday school, had seizures. Went and intersection, had seizures. She knew it. And she read her Bible year after year, even though her brain was so foggy she couldn't understand it. She told me, Why not read my Bible? It's not about the brain, it's about the spirit. Whether I understand it or not, that Bible will feed my soul. She was instantaneously healed after 13 years. I mean, Part of the reason was she's in that Bible, that faith was so strong. She and I continued. We always had to have devotions every night together. That word, you say, is powerful. That word. And so practice that, beloved. Many of you faithfully read your Bible for decades. Don't stop now. Practice it. And when crisis comes, and pain comes, and it does, when you're overwhelmed with something, that which you practice, you'll do. Let me read the story of the widow of the, the great wealthy woman of Shun in the Bible. We remember Elisha came and stayed at her house and found out she was barren and told her she'd have a baby. You remember the story. She said, Man, don't hurt me like that. Don't get my hopes up again. You remember it all. And of course, she had the baby, miracle baby. And the first day he went out to reap with the harvesters, he died in her arms. It's interesting. When that baby died in her arms, the husband's probably ready to bury it, not her. She got that boy, went back to the house, and she said she went up to the room. Mm -hmm. Why did she go up? Because she built up. Yeah. She built up. She built a place for that prophet. She remembered where she had that word. She went up. And when crisis comes, you go up or down, depending on where you go. Mm -hmm. Just the way it works. Wow. And I mean, listen, if we weren't living in a nation in crisis, in a world that needed God, how many of us in our personal life we can stay busy in crisis? Mm -hmm. More children you get, grandchildren you get, more friends you get, the more you got to pray. It's always something. Who they marry, how they marry, what they do, are they sick? It never ends. I, I was telling, as Tom knows, and um, Jim knows, my third son, Robert, was working in the Middle East with his brother in the refugee camp. He played college football at 230 pounds, had a terrifying parasite, destroyed his um, gallbladder, ripped his liver to pieces, and shattered him. As of a year ago, he was 110 pounds dying in my arms. You know, what do you do? when your son's 110 pounds, skin and bones. And it seemed like just yesterday he was signing his letter of intent to play football. What do you do? I mean, the, the, you know, I, all of you who are a parent know there's no worse pain than child pain. There's just no worse. 
I faced death. I faced my spouse almost dying. I've had the doctors tell me I was destroyed. I've laid dying of hepatitis from the jungles. Been there, done that, looked at death. But there's nothing worse than that. And I so thank God at moments like that. And, you know, God's healing him. He came with me, drove up with me. First time away from home in a year. Still recovering. We strode the mountains together. He's resting. You know, I thought to myself, and God spared him. But at that moment, God was still talking to me. And all that pain, why? I've been listening to him a long time. If you don't listen to him when there's no pain, you'll have real trouble when there is. Thirdly, partnership. Matthew 26, 37 to 38. It says, Jesus took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now imagine this, beloved. This is Jesus, the Son of God. How many of you? He's fairly anointed, fairly powerful. And it says he's walking in his and he gets, he gets his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he's walking down deeper into the garden, and he sighs, probably. Peter, James, John. And the kids are Like, this is like the being who raises the dead, walks on the water, rescues them, feeds thousands of people. Um, Fairly serious ministry credentials. And he's got, you know, Peter, James, and John, his three friends, already grow sleepy, you know, filled from the Last Supper, land and this and that. He goes, God, this. Now, how mind-boggling is you know, if your your pastor comes to see you, you're in the hospital, he goes, I know you got cancer, but I've been hurt too. It's been tough. I mean, Jesus is going down the garden and sending, Peter, James, John, I so to do it, Sonny. This warfare is so bad, I think I'm going to die. You know? I mean, they can't face it. I mean, look at this guy. Hmm. Oh, hmm. I mean, they still expect it from him. Well, let's stop here for a moment. The reason they expect it is they slept with their tests. Remember that? They slept with that little thing with Moses and Elijah crying for him. Now, watch this. Jesus went 40 days in the wilderness flying south. And the one thing he determines when this happens again, I'm not going to do this alone. Might be good for us to adopt the same principle. Do not go alone in the hells we all face. Don't do it. No matter how important you may think you are, if Jesus needed his friends when his hour came, so do you. And so do I. It's just a fact. You know, I, I, I would especially under this younger generation. I mean, I mean, I get, I get confused about all this technology. When my last kid leaves to adopt son as well, I'm not even sure how I'll turn my television on. Ever feel that way? I mean, my wife goes the other day. She goes, Anders are old. You know, he's a you see a company in Silicon Valley. She's real smart about technical things. She goes, When is Anders coming back? I can't make the printer work. I mean, our he, he comes in and wires all that down. This is the best system ever. Don't worry. Then he leaves and she goes, how do we work this thing? I go, well, he's coming back again for Christmas. Ask him. You ever feel that way? All this technology and all these different things going on. They got these new things like my daughter, my youngest one, the seven, is evidently a digital native. That means she grew up with it. I'm evidently a digital immigrant. I always thought I was a digital idiot, but I guess immigrants better. I like immigrated in this culture. So... But they've got all this communication. They're all isolated and lonely. You ever notice that? 
I mean, they could text and they could Twitter and tweet and, I mean, email and Facebook and I don't know all this stuff. It's FaceTime. You can have all Skype. You can have all the communication device. I don't know, my new favorite is Viber with kids that go see. You can have all the communication and be isolated. Don't do this alone. Don't do it. And that's why building covenant and friendship and Christianity is so critical. I've been walking with some of the same men and women 36 years now. Walking in friendship. Walking in fellowship. Here's the other kid. This is Jesus. He's walking into this hellish moment. And says, when, when he began to be sorrowful, he spoke, don't wait too long. The one thing I've learned, the one thing I ask people after ministering and preaching the gospel for 40 years now is this. Why'd you wait so long? Why'd you come when your spouse left you? Why didn't you come 20 years ago? Why did you come when you were bankrupt? Why did you come when I could do something about it? Why did you come to me when your kid was in jail? Why did you come when it was first break in your heart? What pride kept you from coming with him? Come before it's too late. Amen. Jesus, the word begin is so important. If you're hurting, if you're broken, if you're in some darkness today, there's only 199 other people sitting around you that would be happy to pray for you. Don't leave here this way. Don't do it. You cannot walk through this kind of hell alone. You just can't. It just doesn't work. I remember when Robert was at his worst, um, and no doctors had answers. And it was the week he had surgery to make it worse. Kathy had to have surgery the same week. She had excruciating, she had two surgeries in four months. She had bones burn her shoulder, bones burn her knee. Because she had not been able to walk hardly, and so. She had, she had surgery on Tuesday. He had surgery on Thursday. How many of you know that's a fairly stressful week, to say the least? And, I mean, I was sitting there. It was Wednesday. She was in bed recovering from surgery, not able to walk for X many weeks, and he was having surgery the next day. He was skinning up to serious. And the phone rang. It was one of my dear friends, a man named Brett Fuller, who Tom knows. Pastors in D.C., I go, I said, Brett, where are you? He goes, airport. Where are you going? He said, your house. I said, why didn't you, why didn't you tell me? He said, you told me not to come see him. And I mean, he, he just drove up in a rent car, yes. prophesied over Robert, prayed over Kathy, and honestly, it was just a game saver. Wow. He stayed two hours, drove back to the airport and flew home. I mean, thank God for, for Brett, James, and John and Gethsemane. And thank God, unlike them, they didn't sit through it. We need each other. The best of us need each other. I was talking with arguably one of the greatest female leaders in the whole world today. Her books have sold millions of people. And I can, I can remember her looking at me, and, and she's like the princess of prayer. Her looking at me and basically saying, oh, there's no one prays for me. And so many times we look at those that seem more anointed and more graceful, more powerful, and we always think, well, they're being prayed for, they don't need us. Don't believe it. I sat with, arguably one of those, along with this woman, maybe the two most famous women speakers, I sat with she and her husband in her bedroom as they cried. I mean, just under attack every possible way, praying to prophesy. So I mentioned this other woman, and she goes, do you know her? They never met. I go, well, yeah, she's one of our dear friends. She prays for us. 
So I called her on her cell phone. They get on the phone. These two of the most famous women in the world. And the one goes, you know, I saw your TV show the other night. I started crying for you. You're hurting so bad. And I fell on my floor praying for you. Other women just broke out crying. You know, beloved, we need state prayer. I don't care how anointed you think you are, how anointed you think he or she is. We're not meant to go through these things to buy ourselves. Tom's right. If you call me at midnight out, I just come. Because that's what friendship is. That's that's how we walk in this matter. Third thing I want to fourth thing I want to say is this or D, proximity. This verse really interests me in Matthew 26, 39. It says this. Going a little farther, he fell to his fell with his face to the ground and prayed. My father, if it's, if it's possible, may this cut be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now watch this. Here's what's interesting. He gets Peter, James, and John, and I really have cast. I'm really broken. Come. But then, catch this. He says, you guys stay here and pray. I have to go a little farther. Now, in this little farther is something very critical many people miss. In fact, you don't even see that further clarified to Luke 2241. And then God gets very specific. It says, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Now, how many of you know, when the Bible gets specific, it's always for a reason. Yes. Now, why would Luke, who's writing to Gentiles, be inspired by the Holy Spirit to say, he went a rock throws away from them? Why? Here's why. Proximity becomes everything in crisis. When the dark night of pain comes, how you position yourself is critical. Here's why. When crisis comes, typically people spend all their time with God or all their time with people. They don't learn the art of walking with both why. Here's what I find. If people feel frustrated and mad at God, they want to be with people all the time. If you feel mad at people in their Christ, they want to be with God all the time. Promise you, you both. What is the stone for? How far can you throw a rock? Depends on how big your rock is and how good your arm is. Now, let's say it's 50 yards. I don't know how far you can throw one. Maybe something that throws a smaller rock, 100 yards. Who knows? I don't really know. But what is God trying to say here? When you're in crisis, you've got to stay close enough for your friends for them to see you, hear you, and be in touch with you yet far, far enough from your friends to maintain intimacy with God. Need both. Proximity. When crisis comes, when pain comes, and it will, when that hits us and wrecks our soul, how do we walk it out? I was reminded of my last tiny mountains with January. I was taking Kathy up to uh, Oh, what's that big house up here, Jim? You know, Vanderbilt, that we don't care. I've got a Billboard house. And all of a sudden, she got started having terrible chest pains. I had to take it to emergency room. And, and she was in the hospital 10 or 11 hours. She wouldn't have a heart attack. Just the stress of a very sick son in surgeries. And I thought to myself, you know, Christ could just break into our life at any moment. How do you do that? Just the gift of tongues. Yes. Yes. I mean, listen, tons of those options in Christianity, but I can't imagine making them about it. I can have to pray all the time. I can help all the time. I mean, you know, you got a son sitting with a dying wife and surgeries, pain. What do you do? Pray in tongues. Why do I pray in tongues? Because the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me knows exactly what I need, knows exactly what God thinks He is God, and I feel better when I pray in tongues. Why? I just feel better. 
I mean, if someone thinks they always want to pray, I guess they don't need tons. I just never met that person. Now, <laughs> proximity is critical. Let's go a little deeper here because I want two or three more principles and I want to pray for some of you. Pray. Matthew 26, 36 says, And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He said later in 40 through 41, He returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The Spirit's willing, but the body's weak. Let me tell you this. If you do not allow your crisis and your pressure to drive you to pray, P-R-A-Y, you'll become prey, P-R-E-Y. You just will. Pray or become prey. You can't make it if you don't pray. I've walked through more crisis, more hell, more autopsies of major leaders falling and going into their churches. And I, I can't think back of it all now. Beloved, in the end, Jesus stood and the disciples ran because he prayed and they didn't. He prayed that they sweat blood. When you pray, your spirit is nourished as you touch God. Man, all hell breaking loose in your life. My old friend, Phil Benasso, who Tom knows very well, I say, Phil, what do I do? He says, pray in tongues, Jimmy. You need to read the Bible more. You think, that doesn't sound smart. No, that's, that is smart. When you don't know what to do and you're weary and you can't figure it out and doctors have no answers and everything just seems crazy, you just pray. I get out at night and I live outside Chapel Hill. Some of you, I live right down Jones Ferry Road, a lot of trees and hills and we have a pretty big lot out there. And I would just get out and just pray in tongues. I don't know what to say. Pray, cry, think of the Bible, and, and all be so better. Why? Because I touch God. Jesus said, Peter, he says, God, I know you've got good intentions, Peter. All you guys love me. You're the best of every person I've trained on there. But Peter, it's not enough. Your spirit's moving, but your emotions are weak. Your mind's tired. I know you're depressed. I know you're afraid. He said, guys, one of the reasons I'm inviting you to pray for me is if you don't pray, you won't stay. You'll run. You'll deny. You can't do it. You're not strong. But let me tell you, prayer becomes your only hope. Being prayed for. I have a text message just to explore the intercessors that I text and keep crises. And I have 700 that have my schedule to pray for me. I, I mean, I can't imagine being without it. But you, you can't get prayed for enough not to pray yourself. I know these things seem simple, but they're true. They're just true. If you'll pray when your crisis comes, you'll make it. If you don't, you might not. Pray. He prayed. And he prayed. He stood up strong. And they just find the step. I mean, they weren't, but they weren't, they weren't having any fun. They weren't blowing their life apart. They were just so impressed and so afraid. They fell asleep and woke up to their greatest shame. He tried to tell Peter, remember that? He tried to tell Peter at the Last Supper. He said, Peter, let me wash your feet. Remember that? Peter, you can't wash my feet. He said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you're going to lose your part in me. Because he wasn't after Peter's feet, he was after Peter's heart. And Peter's heart was filled with pride. And James knew that he did not wash the pride out of Peter's heart. He did not listen to his warning. And he loses his heart. How he loses it? By running out of the garden and shaming his sin. I've been 
they can pray. How many of you know the sure sign you need to praise you no more? <laughs> the hardest to pray for more than you need is so true. Yeah. And the hardest person to pray for is yourself. It's just hard. I know this. You're tired. You're frazzled. You're beaten down. Crazy doctors. Economic things. Some child. Something in your ministry. Some kind of bankruptcy. And it's hard. And if you're a Christian, I mean, you can't go out and get drunk. You can't smoke dope. You're not going to sit at all. You make this sneaking extra cookie. You're trying to look at something on TV. The last thing you want to do. The last thing you want to do. I mean, you want to. I said, pray in tongues. God knows you need to be drunk. Get drunk in the spirit. He understands your time. He's best intoxicated because life's bad. You're drunk in the Holy Ghost, praying the word for God. I'm serious. He's not going to cut it. Go on vacation, you're still tired. Next. I think I'm down to the last two. Perspective. Come on, everybody. This perspective is important. Matthew 16, 21 through 23. Perspective will keep you. Jesus began in Matthew 16, 21 to 23 to tell his disciples. Remember, they finally figured out, okay, you know, well, you're not Jeremiah, you're not Isaiah, you're maybe the Messiah. And, and Jesus thinks, my God, if, if stupid Peter got that, there's a lot of revelation flowing around here today. He goes, Peter, I know you didn't figure that on your own dumb head. My dad talked to you. You never would have gotten that. So he figures since big revelation was flowing, he'd give him a little revelation. He goes, now, guys, now they know who I am. You've been wondering about my plan to grow this church, my plan to change this world. Well, I'm going to give it to you. Envision life with me. Yes, Lord, tell us. Well, here's my plan to change the world. I'll be betrayed, tortured, and brutally murdered. Peter goes, hmm. But the good news is, after all that, I'll come back, promise. So Peter thinks, I've got to take the man aside and just tell him this is a real bad plan. Because <laughs> Peter's, Peter's been hearing this teaching of, you know, the students know better than this teacher. What happens to me will happen to you. And Peter's being a gay. Hmm. Now, the resurrection plan is great. How many of you know we all like miracles until we need one? Be honest. We all like resurrection until we're dying. It's just a fact of it, brothers. Everybody wants a miracle. No one wants a miracle circumstance. So Peter says, Jesus... You know, you've been accurate thus far, and, but this whole death torture deal, I think the devil's probably been whispering that to you. You know, that's not, that ain't going to sell well. Of course, Jesus, of course, appreciated his sympathy and called him Satan. You know that story. So he'd been trying to give them some perspective. They weren't getting it. So now they're surrounding him into the garden. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then the disciples deserted him and fled. One of the reasons the disciples deserted him is their perspective deserted them. Never did him. In the middle of that hell, you understand High priests were in that mob. The very men that had celebrated him at 12 years old were not there to kill him. In the middle of chaos, breaking out everywhere, he said, think you have me? You're just fulfilling scripture. Think it's the end? This was prophesied. Little do you realize, by murdering me, you've killed yourself. By killing me, 
you're killing the power of sin. And just perspective. You know, before my first son Robert hit this crisis, Kathy and I made a, a deep commitment to pray and read the Bible every day before we were married. And other than when I've been traveling over the years, maybe we've missed for being sick or I just, just goes to bed before me, maybe a handful of times. We were praying one night and the Holy Spirit came to me. It's one of those moments where she's typically laying in bed here and I'm sitting on a chair. I fell out of the chair on my face. What's the son? He said, I want you to borrow something you will send me. It's just going to scare you really bad. He said, son, I'm going to use it. And you're going to hate it. Trust me, son. I'm going to use it. He came to me three days later. He said, dad, I know I'm sick now. I'm getting ready to get really sick. But God's going to use it. Don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. I'll never even tell you. I mean, and that, I, I, I just, I clung to that perspective. Is that hell we need to come? <coughs> I remember one night, as sick as I mean, skin and bones sick. He's barely walking, walking over to his mom, and he goes, Mom, Dad, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, you think of those, those things just like, Sear in your mind as a parent. <clears throat> how many times I've gone back to laying on the floor. It's interesting, God said, You're his dad. I'm asking your permission to allow him to fix this. I said, Well, I trust you. I regret it that many times if I take it back. Mm-hmm. And we know the devil's attacking me, and God's sovereign, and we know all that. We can understand all those mysteries. I mean, there are certain things in life that are like intersections, God's sovereignty, our responsibility, mm-hmm. suffering. That we just can't figure them out. I think it's because those are divine intersections and you've got to be wary just to look around, see when you hit when you get to one. There's just things that have to cross through in life. That tension keeps you wary, just doesn't make you too comfortable one way or the other. Now, last principle. Power. Here's the interesting thing I've learned. Remember Jesus told him this, walk while you have light. Because when the darkness comes, you're not going to be able to see what's happening unless you've really become a son or daughter of the light. God does his greatest work many times when it's dark. It just does. It's just too dark to see it. And so and we typically end up, in hindsight, the light goes back on, and we go, oh, man, God was working all the time. I was driving back from a campus ministry two years ago, and um, my daughter was in the front seat. Two of her friends were in the back. That through, um, UNC campus meeting might have been two and a half years ago, and the daughter of one of the finest families in our church. I'm an extraordinary marriage, family, givers, hospitable. Tom knows them very well. I mean, they'd just gone through hell. They were tithers, generous, and they were seemingly losing everything, going bankrupt. Business collapsed in the economy. I mean, they're just like the... If you look at poster children for being Christians, givers, generous, working hard countries, wonderful marriage, kids, hospitable... Tom's family stayed in their house before. And 
I looked at her, and Eric was in the front seat with me as one of the girls that we adopted. In fact, when Kathy was sick all those years ago, she was the last girl to ever drive for my wife. And every girl we adopted, we, we met when Kathy was terribly sick. And I said, sweetie, I said, do you like Erica? She goes, man, Erica's one of my dear friends. I said, Kathy didn't have cancer, we wouldn't have Erica. And I said, there's certain things in life you don't figure out till you get through it. And I said, that's the way with your parents. When they come out of this, we'll know why, because how God will prosper them through it. And there's just a power that comes with God's perspective. Power which comes. Now watch this. I love this. John 18, 4 through 9. The crowd is coming. The mob, soldiers, high priests, hecklers, armed, scared. Disciples are waking up from their depression nap. Jesus, knowing John 18, 4 through 9, that all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Now, give me a break. He should be like breaking down in fear. But he's praying two or three hours at least, and an angel from heaven has come and strengthened him. That's fairly serious. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Now, I love this little statement. I am he. I am fairly powerful, isn't it? And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. Here's one of his best friends. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That means they were slain by the Spirit of God. When he spoke, the whole mob was knocked to their faces. Again, he asked them why they're laying on the ground. Who'd you say you wanted around here? I mean, I mean, all hell is breaking loose. It's the darkest moment in his life that catches it so important, but the whole mob is now slain in the spirit. They're knocked down to their faces, beloved. Who'd you say you wanted? Uh, uh, <laughs> that, that Jesus? Yeah, I think, I, the last time we were married, I think we wanted him. Like Jesus answered. Now he's standing over him. You get this. I told you. I told you I'm he. Now catch this. If you're looking for me, don't bother any of my friends. Now the 12 are on the ground. Catch, now watch, it's so important. Don't bother him. He's just demonstrated his absolute control over that mob. He said, you know, while why we're at it, before I let you arrest me, Of course, we know what he said earlier. You couldn't have me unless the prophets predicted it. Now he says, he said, this happens of the words he had spoken to be fulfilled. I never lost one. You gave me. Right. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. Then, one of them kind of gets up, kind of feeling kind of brave, according to Matthew 26, 51 through 56. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched, who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now what happened? They're kind of getting up, and, you know, Jesus just slain them in the spirit. Well, pardon my grammar, but we think Peter was real brave to cut off someone's ear. I mean, just give him a break. Who couldn't cut the ear off some poor old boy that just been slain in the spirit and turned under the <laughs> Peter probably looks up and goes, oh, I can even suck his wife down. <laughs> he runs up, 
yanked out that story is kept secret all those years that Jesus finally made him tell the truth about it, the Last Supper, just in case power failed to have that sword of his. He yanked that thing out. I mean, to be slain, the spirit knocked down by the power of God. It's not like you're like, too much. He says, I'm the head of the sucker. <laughs> of course, Peter couldn't even get the flesh well. Poor old Peter. Drives to the head of him and just gets here. Boom. <laughs> Jesus says so. Let me just, I'm just going to paraphrase this for you. I'm going to paraphrase the Bible. <laughs> Boy, put that stupid sore away. <laughs> put it away. I told you. You keep playing that thing, it'll kill you one day. <laughs> Let me find that here. I mean, yeah, they're on the way to rest. Dig right there. You go, come here. <laughs> the ear just put back on. All the guys are resting right. Get the ear back on. And he goes, Peter, do you think if my dad really wanted to rescue me from this very essence of his will, he'd use you with that toy sword. <laughs> Remember what happened the last time he tried to rescue me and I thought I didn't name you Satan? I mean, I, we know that's not the Bible. What's happening? He goes, Peter, even now there are 12 legions of angels in the invisible realm. You wouldn't know that if you think of yourself now because you were sleeping like when you are sleeping. Their leader came down and talked to me to remind me they were there. And all I have to do is ask my dad. He'll eradicate every person here, Peter. But I don't want to be saved from my dad's will. Now, here's the most contradictory thing of all. The disciples have just seen him all my shattered, broken the ground. It just seems that this is my dad's will. He couldn't bother to let him buy it. And, by the way, don't touch any of them. And I guarantee you they were going to that one that night. And put your back on. And every one of the disciples got up and ran. How many of you say you've been through some very severe dark times, Christian? 
We can just mercy God. Our personal dark times prepare us for pathetic dark times. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's more hard times coming here. Short duration, don't be afraid. America's not going to end. Greatest days for this. But when it gets dark, don't forget you're prepared for it. Things we long for, believe for, and wait for are dying. It's just too dark to see. Washington, Washington, what is the night? Darkness is coming off the light. I want to pray for you. If you're in these things, if you say, Jim, I, I sure been in this Sunday. I really need to go to Watkins Principles. Raise your hand and pray for the apostles. Lord, I thank you for these great men and women. Lord, there are saints here that the world is not worthy of. They've walked, they've stood, they've seen the glory, they've seen the presence of God, they've seen the power of God. And I and I pray you help them. Every man, every woman, father, mother, grandparent, Lord, Christian, leader, Lord, thank you for them. Lord, as life's off in New York, we're thankful that in 9-11, only 1% of Manhattan was Christian in church, not 3%. And once again, you're going to penetrate this great city. I pray you touch the church in New York today. Lord, you're going to make that city a light to the nation. You're going to move there. You're not done with her. Even in the darkness, your people are going to have a glory on them. I'll give you one last thought that I'm going to prophesy. It's hit me this morning as I was sitting with Jim and Tom in the prayer room. A man named Phineas in the Bible, remember him? He was the young priest, not the messed up Phineas, the one he was named for. Phineas was the son of one of Aaron's grandson. He's one of the people who were in sex and he spirited and saved the plague of God. God says to Phineas, he was as zealous for my honor as I was. Think about this. He was the, the priest that crossed into the promised land. He was the priest that was saw the greatest glory of God in Israel. He walked through the 40 years in the wilderness, or part of it at least. He went into the promised land. But you know what his finest moment was? When you see him in the book of Judges, and the revival's gone, the country's gone crazy, there's judgment everywhere, and it says, and Phineas stood before the Ark of the Covenant in the Lord. And the true test of a Christian man or woman is not to stand strong in revival. It's not to stand strong when it's great or when the business is wonderful and the spirit of God's really moving. It's like Phineas to stay by that ark when it's hard. And that's really many of you. You were touched by God in revival, touched by God in the fire of the spirit, touched by God, and you're still standing. Thank you. Your prayers really do matter. Your lives really do matter. Your giving really does matter. The legacies you leave with your children and grandchildren really do matter. And many of you feel like Phineas. You can all remember better days. Days where the Spirit of God seemed richer and thinner. But you stay right where you belong, right by that presence of God, right in the presence of the Lord, serving in your little church. You won't miss the next thing.